Hey everybody, Chris Lindsay here, and you're listening to Pitch List. Join us on a deep dive into the heart of what makes writing songs and making music so magical. Let's find out what makes songwriters tick, and along the way, remember why we love music. Welcome to Pitch List. Hey everyone, my name is Dana. I'm the producer of Pitchlist, and I am so excited to introduce Chris's talk with today's guest. Welcome to part one of our highly requested music business special. Get your notebooks ready because today we are all students of our guest, Linda Edel Howard, a fantastic entertainment lawyer here in Nashville. Buckle in for a masterclass on what you need to know to navigate the ever-changing music business as a songwriter or artist, and most importantly, how to advocate for yourself and why it's absolutely crucial. Plus, be sure to visit our website at pitchlistpodcast.com for a list of resources and show notes to refer back to after the episode. And now, here's Chris's chat with Linda Edel Howard. Good morning. Chris Lindsay here on Pitchlist. We've got a special episode for you guys today, something that we've had a lot of interest in um, all of our seasons, really, and this is the first time we've been able to do it, so I'm really excited. Uh, our guest today is Linda Edel Howard, an entertainment lawyer, a fantastic entertainment lawyer. How are you, Linda? I'm great, Chris. Great to be here. Well, thank you for doing this for us. Absolutely. I know you usually bill about 400 an hour, so we really appreciate it. Well, it was 400 an hour about 10 years ago. Oh, wow. How much is it an hour now? You have to uh, hire me to find that out. Right on. Uh, Confidentiality and everything. That's right. Do you do, I'm completely off script now, but you made me think of something. On a songwriter publishing deal, do you guys, is it typical to have a fixed price based on it being an ordinary deal or do you do it by the hour or all of the above? There's no such thing as an ordinary deal. Okay. First and foremost, um, for 35 years until May 1st of this year, I, I build on an hourly basis. Um, most lawyers bill on an hourly basis. The more entrepreneurial ones will do a flat fee or a percentage of, of the deal. And then the New York and L.A. attorneys typically take uh, a 5% of everything and do all the work for you. But if you're starting out, they really have to believe in you to do it that way. Right, right, because it, it's really a lot of work. It's a lot more work than people think, right, because I'm just saying my experience, people offer deals, but the, the devil is in the details, like they can offer a writer a deal, but when someone like you starts to look over it, it might not be exactly what was offered. It's always never exactly what is offered. So yeah. if somebody makes you an offer for $30,000, it doesn't really mean it's $30,000. Right. There's just one way that they could say it was $30,000 just based on some... Well, I took a course in college called How to Lie with Statistics. <laughs> I think it falls in that category. Correct. Yeah. Um, and let's go over your resume a little bit. VP of operations, general manager at Polygram. Is that, that was your, that's where you started, right? No, that's where I was in New York uh, oh. after many years of being in private practice. 
Okay. So that was in the early 90s. But I had been practicing law for a little bit before then. And I had a stint at, at running the uh, Polygram office in New York on the business side with John Tita on the creative side. Wow. And was that, so that would have been pop, rock, all, yes. all of their stuff. Yeah. There, there were two divisions, if it mattered. One was the uh, artists that were signed to Mercury Records, like Bon Jovi and Katie Lang, and where the record label also took the publishing once wow. you signed a record deal. And then the independent songwriters, like what always happens here on Music Row, where you're, quote, just a songwriter. So I had two rosters, those that were artist writers and those that were songwriters. Wow. And so you're saying that at that point in the business, a typical record deal included taking your publishing? or Trying, trying to take the publishing okay. there. Um, in... Christian music, it's it's very prevalent where you okay. have to give up the publishing when you sign to a record deal. And in the pop world, um, they, they were just companion. It was like almost a given because you got a benefit. And I don't know, I don't know if it matters as much today, but back in the 90s, it mattered that... Um, that you got a benefit and got paid more on the song side as an artist writer, if you combined your record deal with your publishing deal. Wow. Okay. So there was an incentive to do that. Very much so. Yes. It wasn't just a money grab. No. What do you think about when here they switched to the more 360 deals? Did you have an, an opinion about that? I hate 360 deals. It was one of the reasons that I stopped doing record deals. They were as, as good as, any lawyer could be as great as any artist could be and as much leverage as we could have at the end of the day it was still so lopsided it was very difficult to swallow so the 360 deal means that the record label is taking a piece of everything about you and in most instances not committing to do very much for that land grab right and you know this, but just from on the outside watching, um, they seem to justify it by the lack of CD sales or the, the, the transition in the streaming world. There was a period there where they were saying that they didn't make as much money. And it seemed to coincide with that. Is that is that your opinion that that's was their quote unquote justification for that? Yeah, there's always justification. It's not true. Right. It's because we can because right. you're desperate. Because what are you going to do? Say no. So unfortunately, it's it comes down to because we can, and and if you're not going to sign it, the next guy or girl will. Wow, I'm glad we had you. You are the perfect guest for this segment <laughs> because you are honest, and I love it. I love it. This is great information. Um, so I'm going to keep going with your resume. So after that, it says partner at Loeb and Loeb, right? Which is a big law firm. Well, I, I was in New York, and um, I, I got um, ceremoniously fired <laughs> from Polygram. And you know in this business, if you're not fired several times, it's not a, it, it is a badge of honor. So sure. you need to be fired. So at, the point, at that point, I had fallen in love with a Southern gentleman who was running Polygram Nashville. Right. And I wanted to come down to Nashville, but he didn't want me to give up my career. So luckily, I got... I got canned and I moved to Nashville 
to uh, work with Malcolm Mims and open up the Loeb and Loeb office here. Wow, and that's Doug Howard, your husband. Yes. That's the, so, and you met him when you were at the New York Polygram office. Correct. I walked uh-huh. in the first day, and there was a stack of CDs with a welcome note, and it was his artists and songwriters like Billy Ray and Radney Foster, Leroy Parnell, Toby Keith, and all of those guys. And I called him up to thank him, and I heard that Southern accent, and that was all she wrote. Wow. Yeah, there's something about a Southern accent. You know, my wife Amy has a Southern accent. That's right. And it's, everyone loves it. Well, he's a a gentle soul. Yes, he's great. He's a great guy. And I kept coming to Nashville. He thought I wanted his job, but I actually wanted him. Wow. Wow. So you knew. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I knew with Amy, too. It took, I had to convince her. It took me several years. All right, so then eventually you ended up with your own shop. That's what when I when I've met you recently, you're you do a lot of work with uh, copyright catalogs, um, sales of catalogs. You had some things in there that I loved in your resume: problem solver, advisor, copyright archaeologist. I love that one. Repossessor <laughs> and IPR strategist. I love copyright archaeologist and repossessor. And we don't want to spend a lot of our time on this, but we can talk about it a little bit. As far as I know, you will go take a catalog that exists that someone maybe had some publishing on, a writer, and maybe some hits, and then this is up for sale, and you go back and make sure that we all know what's actually up for sale and make sure all the income got paid and this kind of thing. Is that right? Yeah, that's one of my archaeology uh, digs okay there um so if i'm representing a catalog i i dig i just dig into the history of it and find out um have things been done properly have you been credited as a songwriter properly have you been registered with the pros properly are you getting paid properly is somebody else getting your money and so on so that's one of the archaeology um dicks that i do and the other is in connection with copyright termination or, or, or recapture where right. somebody is a, a, usually a legacy because it takes a while and I, I go and, and um, re, recreate their, their life history as a songwriter. The grants that they've done over sometimes a 60 year period. Wow. And dig up the old contracts, dig up the old bodies and um and and create a, a, a um an inventory and and then move forward to to do the work in the world of copyright recapture on the archaeology part i think it's good to know this we've had conversations about this on the archaeology part you often do find mistakes in a big catalog right or even a medium-sized catalog uh, i don't know if i've not found a mistake wow because whether you're selling a catalog or you're preparing to file for a recapture, we're shaking bushes that hadn't been shaken before. We're, mm-hmm. we're lifting the cover up and we're digging. And most of these songs are earning money, but they're tired and we're waking them up. Wow. And you often find money missing? All the time. Are we talking about a lot of money or little money or just depends? Um, two examples. I, I cannot read an accounting statement. Those things are thousands of pages long. Yep. And they have too many decimal points and zeros. And, and 
it makes no sense to me. So one time I, I just looked at one and, and I saw a number that didn't make sense and I called over to the publisher and they said, oh, I'm so sorry. We inverted a number and here's $40,000 that we're holding for your client. Another time um, I filed for, for termination and we found that the publisher was taking a 10% administration fee for 22 years. That they weren't supposed that to they take. they weren't supposed to do. Did the money come back? Did they get the money? Based on the type of deal that we did with them, we were, uh, re- we were reimbursed every penny. And with the help of a forensic accountant, we determined what the lost value of that money was, and we got paid that as well. That's great. Wow. Yeah, I've uh, through the years, you know, you hear songwriters uh, do what they call an audit, you know, on a, an active publishing deal or an old one or a pretty fresh one. Uh, again, I've never heard anyone not finding money, you know. They, they typically find money, and then you hear a lot of stories of publishing companies that are, you know, there's a hundred grand missing, you know, and then a publishing company says, ah, we'll give you 50. And then this'll, this'll uh, make your hair gray. Um, they owe them a hundred. They say, we'll give you 50. And you say, no, I want, I want the hundred you owe me on paper. And they're like, well, it'd probably cost you 50 to sue us. And we have lawyers on staff. So knock yourself out. Digging into the other side, uncovering the problems, you will, like you said, you will always find something. Wow. They, um, the record labels and the publishers, some are better than others. Um, most of the time, they will work with you, and, and they're right. If you find 100 grand owed, and they offer you 50, you're better off taking the 50. But just know if you found a hundred, there's probably a million still missing. Wow. Wow. So this episode of Pitchless is going to generate a lot of legal fees. <laughs> there's going to be writers scrambling down uh, 16th Avenue looking for lawyers when this one comes out. But you know what? I, I'd heard those stories all the time. I think it's really difficult for creative people to get in this headspace. You know, it's like something about the type of people that write songs and perform, they're just naturally not good at confrontation, at accounting, you know. But it's not, this is what I've always told my clients, it's not confrontation. Correct. Period. You have a contract. Mm -hmm. Your contract allows you, you almost have a duty to take care of your own business. As a songwriter, you are the ultimate small business entrepreneur. You're the president, the CEO of your business. You're also the sole employee creating all the assets. You have a fiduciary obligation to yourself to take care of your business. And the other side gave you those rights in your contract to audit them, to hold them accountable. Mm -hmm. So it is not a confrontation. It's good business. Agreed. And the other side of these, and we're not going to name any names, but publishers, performing rights organizations, these type of places, they can throw out an attitude of, hey, we're family. You know, what is, you know, 
why are you, what are you, what is this? And then I've had them play that card and I've seen things I've like a vibe of, you know, you're getting a lot of money, you know, there are some really good people. Yes. And I left New York to come to Nashville because there's a whole lot more good people here. I agree. Than I, agree. I had in New York that I met with and I dealt with in, in New York. I think the business is changing a lot. Um, and I think we've, we're very lucky that there's probably more good guys yeah, than I agree. bad guys in the front line. But that doesn't mean the ones that are making the decisions behind the, the curtain mm-hmm. um, are going to veto what the good guys want to do and desperately want to do the right thing. So um, it's, it's a battle. Right. And, and to everyone listening, especially people starting out their career, no matter what age, but if you're just getting into songwriting and wanting to come to Nashville and do that whole thing, as it gets more serious, your career, you have to have someone like Linda in your corner. And there's lots of great lawyers in this town, but you, you do at some point, you need that person in your corner. You really do. Well, you need a team. Yeah. Because your family is not the record label and the publishing company. Right. Your family is your manager, your lawyer, your accountant, your publicist, um, and, and the good people at the record labels and, and the, pub, the people, not the company itself. Right. The people. And um, so you need a good team around you. And that's why you find a lot of these celebrities are fenced off. Uh, I had a, a group that I've worked with and known since before they became very, very famous. And I, went, and I heard them say that, that they didn't change, but everybody around them did. Yep. So you just got to keep the people in your court um, to, to protect you. Absolutely. Now let's talk about, um, let's talk about, uh, someone's moved to Nashville. They've busted their butt for three years. Um, they've gotten good at their craft and now, uh, a good publisher is taking interest in them and, and, and offered them a publishing deal, right? You as their lawyer, and these are, we're talking in general terms, but what are things for them to look for and to watch out for? All the way from, you know, like people that want money. I think everyone knows that now. If someone's asking you for money to do a deal or to do something for you, they're not going to do anything for you. These, the, the legitimate people don't ask you for money. But I, I think we all know that. Any other pitfalls or things to do to prepare for that or things you've seen? Well, um, as, as a songwriter, you want to make sure that the period of your songwriting from birth until the day that you sign is sort of not up for grabs as a throw-in. Okay. That's what we sometimes call Schedule A. Schedule A, and they often ask for it. Like- Everything that you've written from day one until now is in, included in your very first deal. Um. I like to make sure that the publisher who has fallen in love with the songwriter picks only the songs that they've really fallen in love with that they feel they could do something with. 
That's number one. Um, number two, um, what, what commitments are you getting from the publisher? Typically, these contracts don't commit the publisher to do anything except to pay you your, your advance, which is just an advance against your own money. They're paying you your own money and risking that, losing that, by not going out and pitching your songs or getting them, uh, or you recording them if you're an artist as well, and not getting um, opportunities for them and marketing them to make the money back. So a typical first deal will be you give up 100% of your publishing, which is 50 cents on the dollar. Right. Um, so you got to work in certain upside as you become more successful. Right, okay. Work in not just more money, but maybe co-pub. So you're saying like certain marks that you would hit. If you have a number one hit, then you the deal moves to a co-pub deal. Or that song. Or that song. Or the passage of time. Okay. If you sign a three-year deal, which is very typical. Mm-hmm. If they want you in year two and year three, maybe you're doing something right. Maybe you deserve a little more. Right. Um, retroactively, making your deal better as you succeed mm-hmm. is important. But just making sure that your success is recognized in your, in your contract is very, very important. Um, what is charged back to your account, mm-hmm. which is what we call the R word, recoupable. Right, right. Um, what is recoupable and how much of it's recoupable? Um, and how is it recoupable? And how it's recoupable. And there's just this nasty R&R world word called or concept called record and release. Um, and this is uh, part of what's called your delivery requirement or your minimum delivery commitment. What do you have to do and deliver to your publisher in order to get paid what they've agreed you to, to, to pay you? Right. This is where the 30000 doesn't mean 30000 So if you are required to deliver 12 songs in one year and they've agreed to pay you 30000 in that year and you don't deliver 12 songs in that year, but it takes you two years, then you've got 15000 a year for two years. So Right, because you're not out of that deal until you deliver until those you songs. Until you deliver. And 12 songs is not 12 titles. And by the way, 12 co-writes is 24. Is 24 and 12 three-ways is 36. Correct. So... If your minimum minimum delivery requirement, you have to turn in 12 songs to meet your part of the deal to get your draw they're giving you. Well, that's 12 100% songs. If you co-write, now you need 24. Because you only wrote half. Because you wrote half. They're only getting half of the song. So you need math for this. So, you actually really need math to be yeah, a songwriter. You do because some will be two ways. There will be some three ways, even a four way. So you need 48 four way songs. To meet to match the delivery requirement for twelve copyrights. Correct. Yeah, and that's and that, that's Nashville. That's where Nashville. if you're it's equal splits most of the time. Right. Outside of Nashville, there's a lot of times you write half of the song and get twelve and a half percent. Right, because your co-writer's big, or any other reason. Right. There that it is, and those songs have to be accepted. 
they can't just be Mary had a little lamb. Right. They can turn them down. Correct. And then talk about the other one, which is the uh, record and release. They have to actually be on a record, right? Right. Like you have some control over that. I know. That's the crazy. That's more of a pop thing, right? Or L.A. thing. It is. And when I was um, when I was interviewed to run Polygram, that was the president of the company actually asked me would I be able to get a recording release commitment from the songwriters. And I just said, I don't think I could do that as the, the head of the, the company in New York. But that just means that for your 30000 or your $50,000 per year or per period, um, you've agreed to have at least three, four, five, six songs, 100%ers, more if it's co-written, actually recorded by an artist and commercially released. By a major label artist too, right? Sometimes. Well, that, did... that's changed now with the whole streaming services okay. and, and stuff. Right. And and but this is you're you're agreeing in advance to write a certain number of songs or co-write them to get them recorded, which is not your job. Right. Your job is to write them and hand them in. Mm-hmm. But they'll be recorded, and you need to make sure that they're released like you have any control over that. And back in the day, they wanted, you know, three Celine Dion cuts. They didn't want like a small act. And also, it was my understanding, say you didn't meet that. You didn't get the three big cuts. Well, now you're in that contract until you do. Suspension. So they they paid you 50 grand for the first year for your quote-unquote draw, however they paid it. Now you're just... You get no more draw, and you're there until you get this delivery or recording. You know these these cuts. Is that and, right? And the four thousand songs you write in the interim, they own as well. Who came up with that little piece of crap idea? Good question. Wow. See, that's sneaky because you you're it, excited to sign a publishing deal, and then you're just like, okay, it's twelve cup twelve. I'll give you twelve tomorrow. You know. But it's easy. If you're Bruce Springsteen, yep, yep, you're in control. But it's not easy if you're a songwriter or a start, a beginning artist or an independent artist. That's yeah, hard. It's tough. Um, and it's again, it's not much of a Nashville or a Music Row right. concept. I've never heard of it here. Dana, you had a question. So the question from Dana is that something you can negotiate or? Yeah, or will they take it out? Everything's negotiable if you're prepared to walk away. Yep. and you can't Most ma- of my clients are not prepared to walk away. And you can't make your best deal until you can walk away. Correct. That's what I always heard. In real estate, that's what they say. And it's true. Correct. Yeah. So the more crazy and unpredictable and wild hair my clients are is good for me as an attorney representing them. Um. And the more prepared they are to, to, to absolutely believe in themselves and walk away. Mm-hmm. Um, but the general rule of thumb that I hear is something's better than nothing. Right. Even though you also hear um, no deal is better than a bad deal. Right. And hindsight always shows you that uh, how could I, how could, and, and the lawyer always gets blamed, by the way. Yep. Uh, how could because the next lawyer once they become successful look at the first lawyer and go how could you possibly allowed them to sign something like that because they wanted to uh, because they said 
you work for me and this is what I'm doing. And you can't blame no. the, the creative community. If, if mo Most of my songwriter clients will die if they don't write songs. They have to write songs. They have to do this. So I'm not blaming anybody. It's just, it's just a sad, sad thing that when the success hits, you see the I wish, you know, shoulda, woulda, coulda there. Yeah, and, and there is a value to having a major publishing deal from a major company. Of They instantly get you in better rooms, better writers. You're now signed to XYZ, big company, and that gets you better co-writes. That gets you notice. That gives you a budget. You're no longer having to wait tables. I mean, there's so much value in that publishing deal. I think that's also why they might agree even though their their lawyer is telling them this is not a great deal, but that could that can go into the calculation of better than nothing, right? And and we're generalizing here. We are because I can tell you with Troy Ben and Rusty here on Music Row, mm -hmm. these people are going to bust their butts absolutely for the songwriters. Absolutely, they're going to get you in the rooms. They're going to put their creative staff on it. They're going to mm -hmm. put their sync department on it. If they say they're going to do it, they're going to do it. Yep. And those are the three biggies. Yep, and I agree. And they're great. They're great people. And they tend not to sign people that they don't think they can do those things with. They have to be big fans. That's another thing I think it's important to know. A publisher really needs to fall in love with the songwriter because it's, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of it takes time and effort to, to, to help even a great songwriter to get them up to that level. You yes. Know? It's a and lot. It, it's, it is. It, it is a lot. And, and you need your champion. Yeah. Yeah. And if that's you right. have your champion, that's great. But, and I don't want this podcast, this lawyers are the ultimate pessimist. Sure. We have to prepare for the worst scenario. It's your I have job. said the most ridiculously bizarre, well, what if this, this, and this happens, and therefore I have to deal with paragraph six. It'll never happen, but what if it does? And so I don't want this to sound so pessimistic, but you, you need a champion within a company. But you also have to understand that the champion that's in your company probably only has a three-year employment agreement. Yeah, and boy. And yeah. they're going to move. Linda, you're so right. I don't want this to, I want every, I, I'm going to reinforce what you just said. And everybody who listens to the podcast knows that I'm often overly optimistic, okay? But this episode really kind of needs to go there because this is what we're talking about. So I, I just want to reinforce what you said. It's not that we're negative people. Every successful writer that you love and you know had one of these deals and has had to negotiate these deals. It's just part of it. And that's what we're trying to help everyone out there sort of know things to look for. It's not right. right. And like you said, it's the lawyer's job to prepare, you know, what, what do the Russians say? Uh, hope for the best, prepare for the worst. Right. And I've done my job well. If we sign a contract and it gets put in the drawer and we don't think about it for years. Right. And we just go forward and have fun. Yep. And make money together and create great partnerships with our publishing yeah. partners yeah and most like you said most of the uh working publishers or people we both know for years um these are great people and they have championed some of the best writers that that our business has had and uh and 
they don't, they, you know, they're, they're Nashville. And I think it's unique. There's still, I think a win, win mentality, mostly on music row. A win, win community. Well, yes. Yes. Because it's a smaller community. It's a tight community. There are sort of rules that everyone plays by. And if someone in this community, business or otherwise gets outside the rules, there's a lot of peer pressure to, to, to not do that. And I think that's missing in LA, you know? So I think that's another great thing about Nashville publishers. They are, they, they tend to be good people and do the right thing. Yeah. And they're song people too. And they're really, if they, if they're not creative, they just love it. And I still get phone calls. You got to hear this. Right. I got to send you something. Uh, I mean, I've I've been with with Doug for so long that I mean even to this day he sits me down between the sweet spot to listen to something you know with the speakers, oh, the speakers right and if I possibly move to scratch something he'll stop and start the song all over again. Wow, he's he's you know true at heart a publisher and and a song man. Um, yeah, uh, and and so and and the young people are are doing the same thing. They're they're just so passionate about it. It's it's fantastic. It is. It is. And those are the most successful people because they are passionate. It's such a, my opinion, all the way around business, creative, all of it. It's such a high level of competition that if you don't have the passion, it's, it's hard to, to win, you know. But you said the key word and that's business. Right. Don't go away. Pitch List will be right back after the break. Thanks to everyone who entered our Pitch List Summer Song Contest. We'll be announcing the winner soon, and you'll be hearing from them on an upcoming mini-episode of the show as one of the contest prizes. So make sure you're following us on Instagram at Pitch List Podcast to stay posted on the winner. Thanks again to everyone who entered. And now, back to the show. Let's talk about this. So we talked about writer contracts. Let's talk about artist contracts. And are there modern artist contracts that you've seen that are different from how they used to be? And what are some of the pitfalls with those? Um, It's very different. When I started out, you were presented with four 40-page contracts, which is the old-fashioned 360 deal. You got a 40-page merch agreement, a 40-page publishing agreement, a 40-page record deal, the whole or 80-page record deal. And so on. Now that's all, and, and we're talking the majors at this point, pushed into one, um, one contract. With the, with the advent of, of streaming, the concept of distribution has, has changed greatly. Right. The concept of breakage and uh, packaging deductions. Right, and, and what they call that when they mark, and, uh, what do they call it when they send them back? They had an allowance. Return. They had an allowance, right? They had, yeah, fifteen free, free goods, mm-hmm. and yeah, I, I remember when, yeah, and and so the concept of how people are paid, it's it's becoming more of a co venture when you sign with a record label, and you're sharing revenue mm-hmm. as opposed to per unit sales. Um, the ability to quantify what you earn on i don't even know if there's sales anymore 
um, you know, I guess vinyl's back out now. and Still a, a small slice. It, it is. So it's, it's all streaming at this point. Yeah. And, and how many streams do you have to get to earn a dollar? And, and so the deals are, um, they're different in the royalty and the revenue shares, but they're still the same in what you have to deliver. Um, although the concept of albums has gone away, right? Uh, I actually coined um, RMP, which is a recorded music project, and I try to put that into my record deals now as a recorded mu- music project because there's no albums, there's no EPs per se, there's no singles per se, and a recorded music project could be a, a, a one one master. Or it could be a group of forty masters over so the, a year. So that was the question I just wrote down: the delivery commitment. Mm-hmm. So all negotiable. Yeah. Yes. Okay. And it's commensurate with what the marketing plan is, mm-hmm. what you're being paid, and how the record label wants thinks that they can recoup it because they just they project. They say, "I'm signing this artist. I project." the releases are going to be as follows, the product that's going to go out in the market. I'm projecting this amount of revenue coming in, and therefore I'm going to give an advance and and splits on the royalties um, a, a certain way. So I got a lot of questions. In the old days, the artist deal, they had points. Right. It was called points, and mm-hmm. the producer was given some of the artist points. Yes. Ranging from... Three to five, or two point five to five. And the artist was getting what ten to twelve points. Twelve, yeah, that, and that was a percentage based on. Yeah, what was that? That it started out as as based on a suggested retail price. Okay. Then it moved to what's called PPD or uh, uh, the equivalent of wholesale. Okay. Price per distribution or something. Forgive me for blanking on that. Um, and so the the percentage was based on what and that's what it was now with respect to cds with respect to downloads Mm -hmm. we do have base prices like that Um, but with respect to streaming it's a matter of revenue a share of revenue what type of so say they're talking they're not talking about publishing on the streaming they're talking about the sound recording right the the record sales Right, the the actual master, who owns the master, the label does. Well, all deals could be cut on that, but Mm -hmm. typically the label owns the master, and they're they're splitting the revenue with the artist. What type of splits do you see? 75, 25, 50, 50, 60, what is it? You're smiling. It it depends on the the type of revenue it is. Okay. Domestic streaming is X. Foreign streaming is Y. Okay. Domestic um, uh, downloads or X, foreign downloads or Y, um, and it's it's all over the board. I, I in in connection with the copyright recapture projects, we've been filing on behalf of the sound recording copyrights because remember mm. there's two copyrights: there's sure. the copyright in the musical composition, and then there's the copyright in the sound recording. So in representing artists as the author as opposed to songwriters, um, we've been filing and negotiating with the record labels to 
better the old record deals. Because remember, now we're going back 35 years when there was packaging deductions and free goods and breakage and all that stuff. And so right now I'm seeing anywhere between a 35% to 50% share of revenue depending on foreign, domestic, streaming, downloads, um, and so on, um, uh, between the artist and, and the record label. But interestingly enough, uh, I had a client who gave me their um, accounting statement, which once again made my hair as curly as it is, and it said that they were getting 50% of, let's just say, streaming. Mm-hmm. And the record label said, we don't do 50% of streaming or downloads. I can't remember which one it was. We do 35, but 35% at source is 58.7% of gross. And I'm like, what? So right now your, your royalty statement says 50-50, but we're offering you 58.7% even though the contract says 35%. And that took me a while to figure out. And you're like, what, how can 35% be more than 50%? And sure enough, when the calculations came out, it was a matter of a foreign money, is it calculated at source, meaning if there's a stream in Japan and a dollar comes in, are you getting 35% of that dollar or are you getting 35% of the money that the U.S. company gets after the Japanese affiliate takes their share? at source, that's another concept that's very important in the, the calculation of, of uh, revenue with your record label. And so again, I'd say 35 to 50% is, is the range mm-hmm. on, on the revenue share. Okay, and then backing up, that all that you just explained to us, I don't know if everyone listening, but I think I completely got lost and my eyes glazed over, and I know why we need you. Because well, my when eyes that talk starts, come on, Danny, you were there too. <laughs> when that talk starts, I'm like, nee, 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 nee. I oh, like I, ice cream. I think if we went and had, where could we eat breakfast? <laughs> I mean, really, when the Japan, when it starts, I'm like, and it's like, that's why we need, that's why we have to have you or one of you because well, it is so complicated. No kidding. It's so complicated. Look at the zeros after the decimal point. I know. Or even if you get, if you've written, you know, I've written a long time. And so you get a, a statement from a publisher or it's literally like two inches thick. Well, you don't get it anymore. You have to go into your portal. That's right. right. The portal. portal. You got to go in and, and look at your mm-hmm. 2,357 page accounting statement for six months. Yeah. And the reason it, I, I, I got to backtrack. <laughs> it's not because I'm making that much money. It's like, there's like, there's like 50,000 entries of four cents. Correct. Or less. That's why. Or less. That's why it's so big. It's not like a bunch of big numbers. But anyway, yeah. So that, I mean, anyone listening, you can tell. It's just like, okay, you need a good lawyer. And after your record deal, if you're doing really well and you're making uh, good money, you probably need to your lawyer to recommend you to a good accountant who understands these things. There are accountant business manager, sometimes they call them, on Music Row, who understand all this. We have the best business managers in the world here in Nashville. we do. I agree. They are the most important partners because they are the eyes on the prize at all times. And the great business managers here save their clients so much money in what they do 
It's amazing. And one of the things that we're really blessed to have, and it's not just in Nashville anymore, but we do have those music business and music industry educational programs at Belmont. And that's right. And your husband, Doug, is the dean. He's the dean of the Curb College of Entertainment and Music Business, which is music and film. Right. Um, They have an incredible audio engineering program over there. They have uh, also the School of Music on the creative side, which is separate. But but the music business, there's a whole lot of creative people. There's a lot of song. There's an an incredible songwriting um, major over there. You have to audition for Mm -hmm. it. And um, a lot of the creative people are taking the music business classes. Yeah. To learn yes. from the lawyers that some of these young lawyers that are great on Music Row are teaching and at MTSU. and Yeah, I wanted to and, put a plug. My son went to MTSU for the music business program. Also another great program. Yeah. Um, and they have access to all these professionals on Music Row that, like you said, who teach over there. And right. these are people that are, these aren't teachers who maybe did it. These, these people are doing it right now and they're walking over there and teaching. And they have hindsight. Yeah. So that's, they, they know, they know the pitfalls and they, they, so these programs, whether you audit mm-hmm. a class or you actually go to the schools and, and again, they have uh, Berkeley college of music up in, in Boston. Sure. Great. There's school. one in upstate New York. Um, I can't remember who has that one. Is that Clive? Maybe Clive Davis has one. And a lot of the key executives have um, co- uh, some colleges that are, that are focusing in on, on music business, which is really for, for the listeners of this podcast, it's, it's pretty amazing. Yeah. And, and there's still, like you said, there's, you can audit classes uh, online probably that are fantastic. Um, now I don't know about the song, but like one example I thought of Belmont, wasn't Tom Douglas teaching over there? Oh yeah. Okay. So you got Tom Douglas, you're walking in a classroom with Tom Douglas, who's in addition to be being an incredible songwriter and human being is one of the smartest guys you'll ever meet. And you've got him as a teacher. I mean, that's incredible. Yeah. And look at Victoria Banks is teaching yep. there now. Yep. They've got real songwriters, and yep. Jody Marr. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of people who have had success and more importantly, have had failure. Right. Because that's learn from everybody else's mistakes. So the lawyers, the business managers, the personal managers, we haven't talked about personal managers, um, they, all, they all teach. And, um, and those are the people probably getting a personal manager on your podcast would be I think that should be well. because that's a, another side. That's a tough gig, in my opinion. Um, here's something I heard of a, a concept from a personal manager. The phrase is found money. Have you seen that before? There's Where if you, it's if the personal manager turns up some of this money that's missing or was done wrong, that he gets a cut of that. Well, personal managers get a cut of everything. Right. Whether they work on it or not. That's the difference between a manager and an agent. Mm-hmm. Very clear cut. Agents go out and get artists, and songwriters, jobs. Believe yep. it or not, a show at the uh, Ryman Auditorium is a job. Yep. They're employment agencies. They have to be licensed as agents. They go out, they're called talent agents. Whether they get you a, um, an influencer deal, 
because mm-hmm. you've got 500,000 followers on TikTok. Right. And you're going to get paid $2,500 a post. That's a job. Now, the managers do that incidental to their work. They manage, they advise and, and, and supervise, they advise and counsel. Um, so managers get paid on everything that their client earns. Agents get paid on what they on what procure they and what and, they do. An example of an agent would be CAA, William Morris, those people. Right. WME, ETA. And there's a ton. There's right. a ton. There are big ones. There's medium ones that are great. There's some small ones that are great. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they have sister companies in L.A., some of them, that handle actors and writers and directors. But they're going out getting gigs. They're getting jobs, right. They're yeah. talent agents. And, and the personal manager is just handling everything else, right? Travel. the word manage. Yeah, everything. I've seen travel, Correct. dog walking, uh, negotiating record deals from the from the biggest to the smallest. Right. Rehab. Rehab. <laughs> <laughs> everything. They're yeah. they're We're in charge. We're not going to say any names. No, but, but they're in yeah. charge and they when you say found money, there are people who go out and that you hire them to go find money that you weren't paid. Right. And they get a commission on that. Mm-hmm. That's one way of saying found money. Another way of saying found money is if we look at your social media presence and we see that you have a half a million TikTokers or 60,000 Instagram followers and the found money is now we're going to get you um, a uh, uh, some influencer deals. We're going to get you some sponsorships and sponsored posts and and a lifestyle brand and start mm-hmm. licensing uh Chris Lindsay headphones or t-shirts or water bottles that could be found money that a songwriter you wouldn't think a songwriter is going to have bottled water named after them but maybe the, the maybe the label has your lyrics on it I don't know right there's all I, well, let me ask you one other thing um, people I every, and every now and then I'll see someone doing a snag on a young artist like trying to snag them on a production deal quote-unquote or I'm going to shop you for six months and I get a cut of the deal. There's all versions of that. What are, what's your opinion of those things? My opinion is that there are certain custom projects. There's a whole lot of rich daddies out there. Right. Custom is outside of major right. label. Who, okay. who rich daddies and, 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 and typically, um, well, and I'm sugar not going to go sugar, sugar daddies, daddies too. <laughs> okay. That, um, want to pay for their, children or their paramours to become famous in the music business. Yep. Sometimes they're 40 years old and sometimes they're 14. Um, and there's a lot of people out there that do those custom projects and say, you know, give me $50,000 and I'll make a record on your daughter or your son mm-hmm. and I'll, I'll send it around to my friends in the business. Now, some of that's legit. Most of it is just not. Um, so my take is that if a producer and if someone has to set up with a studio and you truly believe in somebody, you're, you're, you're going to go in with them. You're going to, you're going to take the flyer with them and what we call on spec. Mm -hmm. And you're going to say, I'm going to put, I'm going to invest in you. You're investing in me. Mm-hmm. and um, we're going to work on this together, and we're going to be partners, and I'll make money when you make money. That's what I've always done. And maybe I'm naive, 
but that's that's how that, those are the deals that I trust. Yeah, because if you don't work well together, it's not going to work anyway. It has to. There has to be a trial period between a producer and an artist where you go in somewhere and cut some things and see how it works. And if you try to nail something down before you do that, I just don't understand how. Because if it didn't work, now everyone's locked in this bad deal. There is a chemistry involved, just like co-writers and artists and producers. But what I'm finding happening, and it's happening right now, actually, in, in one of my projects, not mine, but one of my clients, um, they did the, the whole, I'm in it with you. We're in it to win it together. Yeah. And invested and made records and made introductions and got them on social media and got them all set up and their trademarks and their website and all of that. And it's just starting to take off. And, they and got we shut present out. and we presented a contract that's like, nah, I don't, I don't know. Because they right. then go and get a lawyer who's looking right. at it for the first time going, oh my God, you, you should never sign something right. like I, this. What I can, did they do for you? Right, and I can go get a better deal for you tomorrow on that or today. And it's like, well, wait a minute. So that's right. There's always a flip side. So if you feel like someone, there are situations where you might sign some sort of deal where these this person or people stay involved if there is some six, it to me, it's always dependent on like cutting one song is great. No problem. This going on for six months and writing and introducing. And that's when I would have to have something, you know? Yeah. But they're the, the real deal. People can't based on passion. They can't stop themselves to stop, to do a contract, the producers and the right, managers right. and the, and the PRO members, membership reps that are just, in this because they have to do it mm -hmm. there you know the their their band is sleeping on the on the floor of their house you know yep. while, while they're taking their kids to, to school and and it just doesn't it, it doesn't even enter their their consciousness that i could possibly get ripped off because we're all in love with each other now and that still happens of course today yeah i guess you know what's great about this conversation is i think people can get a pretty good idea at some point you need you need you need representation. You know what I mean? You need you need somebody in your corner. Yeah, but how do you hire a lawyer that's going to charge you a lot of money mm -hmm. when you don't have a deal that's giving you any money and you're not earning any money? Well, the only place that's going to happen is if someone approaches you for a production deal or something, right? Well, management deals, you don't get money. Yeah. yeah that that's one of the more expensive ones. But let me point out that, that it, it, each community has an arts and business council and there are, um, there, there are nonprofits around the country that, that offer free legal. That's great. Uh, I'm approached on a weekly basis to represent people pro bono. Um, my old law firm um, had a mandatory 30 hours of, of pro bono work. So That's fantastic. And most of the big firms have that. And many of the big firms have entertainment and IP intellectual property lawyers. So you can go, it used to be called volunteer lawyers for the arts and it's something mm -hmm. like that. And so a lot of beginner artists and people who just don't have the money can, can find that resource. That's great. And one thing I've always done, and this is just me, but I always tried to find somebody with somewhat of a track record you can you can pretty easily see if this is 
uh, for real person or not. But yeah. you can be enthusiastic, and it, when someone loves you, it's very hard not to love them back. True. And I think that's that's where we all that's where we get in trouble as an artist. And you've said it great. I mean, it's so easy to fall in love with a project and just the camaraderie and the esprit de corps involved. It just you don't think of those things. And I know some situations where it really happened. Another one I try to talk a lot about is co-writing relationships as you mature as a writer and maybe your horizons have been expanded a little bit you end up staying in these co-writes that really aren't good for you that don't produce songs that are you know commercial or that people want and it gets hard for people to get out of those relationships i think it's just human nature i've never written a song so i right. i can't right. comment on that you're looking at me like well i don't I've, know I, about I, that <laughs> got a lot of ideas for songs but yeah uh, do you i do i have scraps of paper do you well what in the old days when I first started, they would offer like I, the old older guys I kind of learned from would offer fifteen percent for a good title. Maybe you should put some up <laughs> oh, for, for sale. a good title for a good title. The only problem with advertising a title for sale is that you can't copyright a title. You can trademark a title, and that's what people are doing now. Okay, what about this? Do band names have to be trademarked, like a rock band or a country band? They don't have to be. Or should they, they be? Should are be. they? Are yes. they often? They, they, the, the, the minute you start um, marketing and identifying yourself as band, mm-hmm. um, pick one, the Beatles, um, you, you're, you have some cop, you have some trademark protection. But then, this, just like copyrights, the minute you write a song, you have some copyright protection. But you want to send it to Washington D.C. and file right. it and register right. it with the copyright office. Same concept with a trademark. The minute that you start putting out a a product, whether it's a kitchen, you know, a faucet under Kohler brand, mm-hmm. um, you have some trademark rights, but then you also have to register it. You should register it in Washington D.C. with the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, and it gives you greater protection and and greater rights. So yes, band names should be trademarked. Band agreements are very important because bands break up and you see all of the old um, legacy bands, whether it's the Temptations or the Commodores or, you know, or where two of the original members continue because somebody passed away and and they're still, are you getting the band that actually made the record? And can you promote yourself as that band? Who do you expect to see when you go see... Um, these are you expecting to see Lionel Richie? Right. And Lionel Richie's not in the band. So who is the Commodores? With, right. With Lionel or without Lionel? Yeah, one of my dearest, oldest friends plays drums for the Commodores. They tour all over the world. Maybe they have a deal out with Lionel that, that he's been cool about it or they have have some financial arrangement, but he would have to be involved. Should bands uh, make agreements among themselves? Hell yeah. Okay. Am I allowed to say that? Yes. Yes. Very important. And dealing specifically with the hard topics, it's it's like a prenup. Uh, this is the band. This is the name. Mm-hmm. If somebody dies, what happens? If somebody is kicked out, how do we kick them out? And what can we do? What mm-hmm. can they do? 
right. whether they're kicked out or they quit. Yep. Can they be formerly of, lead singer of, from the band of? How can they use that name? But even when a band is together, and I did this with a band I worked with for 13 years, um, when they went off and each did solo projects, no, you're not going to, you know, Joe Smith is not as sexy as the name of the band. And right. the name of the band had to be used all the time. So when the solo artist was using the band name and earning money on it, the, the other two that weren't in the band are getting a piece of it, unless they said, nah, don't worry about it, you go take it. But it's a discussion. Wow. And it's probably better formally set out. Everything is better. Good good contracts keep good friends. Yeah. Just like good fences keep good Yeah, neighbors. and you know what? Bands, you know, bands form when people are young and just by forming, you are subject to certain legal rules and Correct. Rules of the road. Which is a general partnership, for instance. Right. The three people get together right. and they decide they're going to play music together and split the profits from going to play the clubs. Mm -hmm. They've fallen into a general partnership, which means that any one of them can bind all of them without the other two saying yes or no, which is why you need a general partnership agreement. Wow. Band agreement. Man, I'm learning so much. Crazy. Yeah. Hey, I could talk to you forever. This is an important subject, but I just want to, um, we're going to cut it off here, but maybe can we reserve the right to a part two in another season? Would you come back? Yes. Because maybe what we would do is take some questions from, to, from the people who listen and they may have some questions and we could ask you those. Is that Absolute, okay? Absolutely. This is Pitch List. You're listening to Linda Edel Howard, Chris Lindsay. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to this episode of Pitch List, produced in partnership with the American Songwriter Podcast Network. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or your preferred listening platform. And if you want, feel free to leave us a five-star rating and review. For exclusive content from this week's guest and more, you can visit our website at pitchlistpodcast.com. Or follow our social media pages on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Plus, don't forget to let us know on social media what songwriter, musician, or music business professional you want to hear from next. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.